Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddihy, as I look back and have a listen to highlights from previous shows throughout the year. In this episode, Ian Maloney, Louise Welsh, Tony Connolly, Linda Jackson, Neil White and Zoe Strachan all talk about their favourite book from childhood. When, the, when you give me the choice of your favourite book from childhood, when you actually sent me the list in brackets, it was yes, really. So yes. You, can, you can tell everybody what you chose. Yeah, I chose for my strangely for my childhood book, um, Spike Milligan's uh, Mussolini: His Part in My Downfall, which is the the fourth part of his his war diaries. It took me a long time to to work out which one to choose. It's a it's a difficult question that one favourite book from childhood because how do you define Childhood, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's books. I remember reading when I was very young, Roald Dahl and Dick Kingsmith and those those kind of writers. And I remember them, Roald Dahl in particular, being very important to me. But I don't really have much memory of actually reading the books and, and the stories and things like that. It's more just the nostalgia of the cover. Like my, my niece is about one and a half just now and... You know, thinking about Christmas and birthdays, what books to buy mm. her, and just looking at the covers going, oh, I used to love that one. But beyond that, I wouldn't have much to say about those books. But I found um, I found Spike Milligan's book on my parents' bookshelves when I was about, I guess, about 10 or 11, that kind of age. So we had a lot of books in the house. Other Other guests on this podcast have spoken about this as well, having lots of books and having parents who are not censoring what they yeah. read and that kind of thing just pull something off the shelf and read it so they were like that with books they were also like that with my my dad's record collection you know pull stuff off and put it on and you know he had Led Zeppelin records and things like that so I would just do that pull stuff off and find things that I found like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Lord of the Rings and those kind of books but yeah I pulled um, Spike Milligan off the shelf and I don't know to this day actually why they only had the fourth one I was wondering why of all those seven that you chose yeah it was was the first one I read and I'd never heard of him I didn't know about the goons and I hadn't come across his poetry or anything like that it was just I pulled off and there was a it was a paperback edition with a funny cartoon of like a caricature spike with a bowl of spaghetti upside down on his head I was like that's you know that's funny it's it's an interesting cover and I started to read it and I've sort of never stopped reading it since. I reread it. Well, I reread the whole series quite frequently. It's just, first of all, it's just hilarious. It's it's a very very funny book. You know, he's the comedian that inspired most of the other comedians of the twentieth yeah. century. Inspired Monty Python and all those people. And um, some of it hasn't dated well. It has to be said. You know, he's very much of his generation. But the the comedy, the humour there just really tickled me it sort of it probably shaped a lot of my humor but it also was just on on the right level for me a lot of spike's humor is quite childish so because yeah. i liked when when i was just checking and there was a list of all seven books and then when it came to the fourth one Mussolini has part of my down, downfall that it says this was announced as the fourth part of his quote increasingly misnamed trilogy yeah. <laughs> so that kind of right away that tells you yeah yeah it's that that kind of attitude and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting series because it was dismissed at the time of publication as being kind of an, un, I think Clive James called it an unreliable history of the war. So it's all about his time as a soldier, as a gunner in the Royal Artillery during the Second World War and after. 
and yeah, it was sort of dismissed as as not being reliable as him taking liberties with with the truth for entertainment, which he probably did. The conversations are very much like scripts from the Goon Show rather than natural conversations. But it was all about his experiences. And um, interestingly, I was just listening to another podcast, um, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, which is Al Murray's podcast on the Second World War. And he was talking about the book as being actually a very reliable history of what it was like being a soldier fighting in North Africa and in Mm -hmm. Italy during the Second World War. I mean, there's so many books, aren't there? There's just amazing books that, that you read as a child. And I think you maybe read with an intensity and focus that we don't always retain as adults. Like a lot of people, we used the library a lot when I was a child. So we used the library once, twice a week. We didn't have a lot of books in the house. We didn't need them. We had them up the road at the library. And I had an adult ticket from quite an early age. My dad asked if I could get an adult ticket because uh, he felt that I, I, I needed it. <laughs> It was an essential item. Treasure Island is a book, though, that I didn't initially read by myself. Treasure Island is a book that I have a very strong memory of my dad reading this book to me. And I can see the book. It was a book from the library. I can see the map. I can see the skeleton. I can see uh, the compass on the map. Really, really exciting. And I think it was partly perhaps that my dad, I could tell he was excited to read it to me. But also what an amazing story that is. You know, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. It's got a little boy, (laughs) Jim Hawkins. And I think as as children, we read ourselves into the story. We we inhabit these different genders. It didn't matter to me that this was a boy. I was there. I was in the apple barrel. I was being chased by these pirates. The bit I remember most of all from this reading by my dad is the moment when uh, Blind Hugh makes little Jim Hawkins deliver the black spot to the to the captain in the Ben the Admiral Benbow Inn, and the captain sees the black spot and he falls down dead on the floor. And I remember saying to my dad, "What's the black spot?" And he said, "You will find out tomorrow." And closed the book and said, "Right, time for bed." And I couldn't go to bed, and my mother was like, "John, what have you done to that bairn?" <laughs> But that taught me a lot, you know, that the power of literature, the power of black and white words on the page, they have the power to frighten you and to keep you awake at night, you know. And that that's maybe the, yeah, that love of that kind of visceral, scary, I still like reading scary books. I still have moments when I can't go to sleep because I read something too frightening. And I think that started at a, a really early age. It's funny, that book, and I think it, you know, particularly when you read it at a young age, it does have an impact on you. Because one of the previous guests in the podcast, Joe Donnelly, and he, I think, again, his dad had read it to him. And then he, he said he, he was scared going to school because he just kept, he was he was worried that he was going to get the black spot. So, <laughs> which is, you know, that, it shows you how, how much people take that to heart. But I suppose it's, that, it's also that, apart from the fact it's the story, it's that shared experience that you have uh, reading it with your dad. It's just something that, it transports you back, I suppose, to that time of him just sitting reading. And as you say, he's probably enjoying it as much as you, but then passing on that love of the book to you. It's a really precious experience. And I'm still a, a great fan of Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, and I think Stevenson was somebody, he, as you know, he had very, very bad health. And he wrote this book at a point when his health was terrible. I think he wrote it in Bournemouth and his, his health is, you know, he, he's 
potentially facing death. You know, there's there's no guarantee that he's going to survive the illnesses that he has. And yet he does survive until uh, his early 40s. He's somebody who loves to sail. He loves, you know, these journeys, these maps are central to his life. But I think Stevenson's very interesting because he is, I, I'm not even sure that I really like the term post-colonial. I'd rather say anti-colonial. I think he's an anti-colonial writer way before people are doing this, you know. And he precedes Conrad. He's writing at a time of huge racism. And that love of journey, that love of travel and this ill health eventually takes him to Samoa where he's still revered you know and he was a, a real ally of the Samoan people in trying to fight against colonialism and he put his uh, he put his reputation where you know where his feelings were and is still respected in that country as well so I think his, his work means a lot to me still as a grown-up. I think the the first one that springs to mind. I don't know if this would have been the first one I read, possibly, but the I think the one I'm going to go for would be Roald Dahl's George's Marvelous Medicine. I think I was probably around eight, maybe when I, I, I read that. Um, I read quite a few Roald Dahl books. My dad got me into them reading uh, the Twits, uh, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, BFG. But there's something about George's Marvelous Medicine that was just like peak Dal for for me it was like that mischievous nature that um that he, he has with what his characters are, are doing as well and just you know this young boy living with his, his gran and his mum and just putting together all these concoctions. I think that was something I would always do when I went round to my cousin's house, Chris, we would go around and then we would like sneak away and then start doing things like that in the kitchen and like sort of just playing pranks and things like that. So it always uh, appealed to me and he just the way that he also captured how kids sort of perceive thing that perceive things like that unfiltered honesty that they have uh, as well as something that I think you can appreciate in a, as an adult as well because I've gone on to read some of his short stories as well for adults but yeah George's Marvelous Medicine I just I just loved it the images that <clears throat> you would sort of conjure up in your head while reading it were just so vivid and you think back on it and you wonder was that was that watching a film or was that just things that I pictured so clearly in my mind with the way that he wrote it because I wonder if if the book was to get published now they'd have to put a wee disclaimer to say to children please don't try this at home because you say <laughs> the first thing you want to do when you get together with your cousins is read the, the, the kitchen cupboards and start an experiment yeah yeah it was um, it just it, it speaks to you so much as, as a kid for him to write that as an adult and have those thoughts that you have as a, as a kid as well and just the way that George looks at his, his gran as well you know he's kind of as he's making up I think I remember him thinking like I'm sure he's thinking this might kill her and the way he's just sort of thinking um, is oh, I could do without sort of having a body on my, my hands so it's it can be a bit sort of morbid and cold in a funny way as well and just the way as well that he looks at old people in it you know like as much as growing up you love your, your gran and your, and your papa and stuff like that like he does capture how you know as a kid Again, that sort of unfiltered honesty, you're kind of like a bit wrinkly and smelly and you might not want to hold your grand's hand or something as much as you love being around and, and love her and he just, he, he gets that down on paper so well. What I always find interesting and, you know, most people growing up, I think, would have read Roald Dahl and you, you keep talking about this, the kind of authenticity and honesty he captures in children and that's probably the reason why he's successful because I remember 
it was an interview I think with David Williams who kind of taken on that mantle and, and rolled out his, his kind of literary hero and he's been really successful but he's successful because his books are good and they appeal to children because they wouldn't necessarily know who, who he is as an adult, as a, an actor, as a comedy actor. So, you know, if Rogdale's books, you know, as an eight or nine-year-old didn't resonate with you, you would never have read it or you would never have finished it or never read any more of his books. Yeah, yeah, I know, I think so. I'm not sure if that was the first one I read. I think the first one was BFG. But, um, yeah, like you say, it just it just captures you and it, you're just so excited and it's such a great way to, to draw kids in to, to reading as well. And I think he, he does that thing that sort of... Disney Pixar films do these days, you know, like Toy Story, it has humour that adults can appreciate as well as humour that kids can appreciate and I think that's that's a really difficult thing to do, but he, he just he has that in all his books. Um, I mentioned how poetry links back to your first choice, which was your favourite book from childhood and the book that you had chosen. It's called The Golden Road, which is a poetry collection for kids. And that takes you right back to primary school days. This is it here, Paul. It's The Golden Road and it's ancient. And when I, when I, I always use this, I'm teaching for poetry and it says in there, there's some keen people had it, but it says in there, St. Charles's School. And then my own writing, my name's Crilly, right? My own name, so it's Linda Crilly. Uh, St. Charles School and I'll not tell you the date because it gives a lot away about my age but it's totally ancient so I must have been a wee mini tea leaf I must have loved it so much I had to take it away with me you know You're a woman after my own heart because I, I've told this story often that one of my favourite books from school days secondary school was Catch 22 and I've still got my copy which, uh, which fell oh, into my school bag <laughs> <laughs> can't stop ourselves. I mean, what was it, even at that early age, that caught your imagination then in terms of those poems? I lived in Glenburn and I used to live up near the Braes and I, I don't know how I got an education, to be honest, because I was dogging school and running away up the Braes. And I'm a big Christina Rossetti fan to this day, but there's a wee line in this, there's a couple of lines. Boats sail on the rivers and ships sail on the seas, but clouds that sail across the sky are prettier far than these. There are bridges on these rivers as pretty as you please. But the bow that bridges heaven and overtops the trees and builds a road from earth to sky is prettier far than these. That's Christina Rossetti's wee poem for children. And I used to run away up the Glenifer Braes and just lie my back up there and look at the clouds uh, when I was quite young. I don't know how I survived it now. I, I can't even imagine doing that now in a bright day. I'd be too frightened with the places I went. But I used to go up there and, and that spoke to me, that kind of poem, you know, just being outside and being somebody and having a chance to go somewhere. Do you think as well, because I always think is, you know, when you think back to school days, how important the books are that you read, but also the, maybe even the teachers who are giving you those books, but also giving you that lifelong love of words and, as you, in, in your case, like poetry and, and books. And you can be in amongst, I think, a lot of difficult teachers. I, I went to a convent school for six years, an all-girls school, and I was kind of lucky to get there because I came from a housing scheme and a couple of years before it had been fee-paying. So I think this was is the beginning of chaos. Uh, but for me, it was a saving grace. And you could have some teachers, that, whether they were nuns or not, that maybe seemed a bit strict for you or a bit out of, in a different planet. It only takes one. It takes one teacher, I think, to invest and have belief in you, you know. And it, it can change you can really change yourself around. I was quite wild up to I was about third year in school. No, I don't mean bad, just crazy, you know, having a laugh and all that all the time. Probably looking for my stage, if you know, always yeah. making people have a giggle and stuff. And some teachers respected it in a way of being a personality or whatever kind of personality you have. But there's other ones that would crush. I always remember one woman taking me aside 
having a kind of long talk to me. And um, I, ch- I literally changed. I, I wasn't the girl that uh, shook her hair out and took her glasses off and went wild. I was the girl that t- tied her hair back and put her glasses <laughs> on. You know, I did it the other way. And I had kind of failed my prelims and stuff and O-levels and ended up with 11 O-levels. I just never stopped. And then I thought, in my house, while it was lovely, could be a wee bit chaotic, you know, when I baby and all that and I remember looking about and thinking I'm going to live like this you know as much as I loved everybody yeah I just get down you know so I think teachers can save people and the book you've chosen is a book called The Magic Paintbrush <laughs> and I've heard guests discussing novels that they read as children and the truth is that a big part of my sort of literary life stems from the fact that I wasn't a big reader when I was a young child at all. I was really more interested in playing football and I would just do that for um, far too much of my life and run around with my pals and I wasn't really a reader. So I was thinking about this entry into the list and I thought, what books did I read? You know, before I get to the one that will go into the next slot, which books predate that part of my life? I couldn't think of any any novels that I read. Um, I was always okay at English. In fact, I was, you know, I was, I was good at English. I could respond to texts that I was reading in the classroom and I could write about things that were happening in my life and around me. But I don't think I came from that much of a sort of reader's house. Like my old man, he doesn't read, never has really kind of read novels. He was an educator. He's worked in education his whole career. And um, he's sort of a historian as well. He's, he's written, he's written books. He's written books about his, his favorite hour, favorite football club Falkirk you know he's, he's written five volumes of their history but I can never remember seeing him reading a, a novel or or even a narrative non-fiction book it just didn't happen so yeah when I was a kid uh, I didn't really read many novels so the magic magic paintbrush is an old Chinese folktale and we had as I'm sure the majority of households in the country had a bunch of these ladybird pocket hardback books you know I got a bunch of them for my kids when I became a father and I couldn't find this one. It was my favorite when I was very, very young. So the story of the the magic paintbrush is about this kid called Liang. He's a poor boy. He's grown up and uh, he wants to be an artist. OK, but he can't afford paint. So um, he, he draws, you know, he gets pebbles and he draws pictures of animals and stuff on the on the stones in his village in China. And then one night a magic old man visits him in the night. He visits him in his dream and he leaves behind the magic paint, the titular magic paintbrush so he wakes up and he finds the magic paintbrush which doesn't need paint it's magic paints a a bird on his wall in his room and then as soon as he's finished the painting of the bird bird comes to life so then he tries a fish same thing happens and um he doesn't need anything then doesn't matter he's poor because he can paint anything that he needs and um he can help all the poor people in his village by painting anything that they they need but kind of word gets out and and he gets abducted by the sort of evil emperor who wants him to paint all the riches in the world for, for himself. So he eventually escapes the emperor by painting his means of escape, a, a rope to climb down and, and a horse to escape on. And then he becomes an artist. He becomes the artist that he always wanted to be, but he doesn't finish his painting. He always just leaves a little bit unfinished so that it doesn't come to life. He's selling these paintings, so he's making money from being a genuine artist. But then the emperor finds out about him because this, this fat guy walks behind him when he's painting um, a bird and he kind of bumps into him and the bird accident, the splash of paint finishes the picture, the bird flies off and uh, he's, he's kind of rumbled and the emperor's after him again. And eventually the emperor ca- captures him and, and makes him paint a boat. So he paints him a boat. So now you go paint me the sea so I can sail on the boat. So he paints him the sea. 
the emperor and all the soldiers are afloat on this big boat, but it's not going anywhere. And the emperor says, now you must paint me the wind so we can sail. And so he paints him the wind. He paints him a stormy wind, paints him a really big stormy wind and, and the waves start engulfing the, the boat and eventually everybody on the boat drowns and Leanne just walks away. And the last panel of this children's picture book is the bad emperor sinking beneath the waves and Leanne's walking away holding his paintbrush. But he, he looks really sad. Like he, he's not like, um, you know, it's not a sort of joyous victory for him. It kind of reminds me of the, the end of sort of one of these movies that Denzel Washington makes these days when he's like an avenging angel and he's just destroyed all the bad guys, but he hasn't really found happiness. That's quite dark in some respects for a kid's book, that, it, particularly that kind of that ending as well. Yes, I mean, there, there are definitely there, there's tropes in there that you can find in, in any number of these um, children's stories from that series. I don't want to build it up into more than it is, but there's a reason that it's survived hundreds and hundreds of years, that story being passed down and you know there's a there's a rhyming version now that um Jolly Donaldson did a, a rhyming version and there's been several incarnations in English of of the magic paintbrush. In the book that you chose, well it was a series you said it's written by Susan Cooper, but the book you've chosen is that I think it's the second in the series called The Dark is Rising. Yes, um, and that one definitely borrowed, first of all, um, from the Children's Library and the Dick Institute, um, and then the rest of the, the series borrowed in rapid succession, because it absolutely, it absolutely blew me away, and I still have copies of all of them just now, and have, have reread them many, many times. As a child, I'm an only child, so reading was really important to me anyway, and I liked a lot of sort of fantasy novels. I quite liked novels and stories stories about only children who are a bit lonely and then have a big adventure and you know these exciting things happen and they end up more confident or with friends or having achieved something you know and I, I don't want to sound as though I had a miserable childhood because I absolutely didn't you know I was quite quite happy in my own but you know when you're an only child you you probably do spend more time in your own and you know you maybe do find it harder to to make friends so I liked I mean, I like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and the Narnia books and all of these things. But when I found The, the Dark is Rising, it was something that was contemporary then. And I hadn't read, I think, a children's book that had done that before. So the, the hero, Will Stanton, wakes up. He's 11 years old. It's his 11th birthday. It's Christmas. And he goes out into this magical um, world, which is our world. But then it changes and he discovers that he's got particular powers because he's part of this group called the old ones who are there in the the fight against of the light against the dark and he's got access to magic and you know all of these things so I suppose it's a, a kind of portal quest in a way but it really I think it really affected me because you knew that he was starting in the world that we are living in I mean okay he was starting in England and he was living in a nice big house with all his family and it was all you know, lovely, but uh, near the beginning of the book, he, he witnesses a scene of bullying, for example, actually racist bullying that's really, that's really horrible, you know, and, and quite hard hitting, you know, for that was at the time for a book for that, that sort of age group. So it sets up in a way that you might be reading a fantasy novel, but the things that you can do in the world that are good apply to your your normal everyday life too and these these acts of injustice or, or bigotry that you might see in any other way. I suppose I maybe didn't think all of that through at the time, you know, that's just a lot of benefit of hindsight, you know, at the time it was just like brilliant, I hope Will collects all the magical signs and conquers the uh, winds out against the, the dark. 
but it's it's a fantastic series. I mean, there's a lot of mythic background that you'd recognise, sort of Arthurian myth, that that kind of thing. But really good, strong characterisation. It's never too easy for any of the characters. Things are complicated. It sounds as though it's that simplistic. There's goodies and baddies and the goodies are going to win. But actually, sometimes it becomes a bit murkier than that. And the goodies do things that make you wonder whether the end justifies the means and the baddies do things that you think, oh, well, maybe they, they weren't always that bad. They're just, they're fantastic novels. They're exactly what you want for, I suppose, escapism now, but stories that totally engross you and captivate you. Because I know, you you know, you obviously mentioned some of the things you notice maybe with the benefit of hindsight, but I think I wonder sometimes if the, the best children's books, the ones that you remember, as you say, maybe it doesn't jump out at you at the time, but it's planting something in your mind of, as you say, t- tackling issues that you're maybe thinking about, but in the course of the story, you're captivated by the storyline, but it's planted a seed there that you will come back to. So a lot of books you do forget about, but those are the ones that you remember. Yeah, I think you're right. And all through that series, there, there's a sense that, you know, with Will as a character, with the, some of the characters in the other books, that they are going to become better people in this world through their, their contact with this other world which you know I suppose sort of happened in Narnia but I I didn't have a religious upbringing so when I read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe I had no idea it was a Christian allegory (laughs) you know I just thought what's going on why are they sacrificing the lion I don't understand why are they tempting him with Turkish delight this seems perfectly benign (laughs) that witch is lovely um so I think I was I was probably more suited for, you know, to have a book that um, that didn't have that that kind of underpinning. Sometimes I think, particularly with this book choice in the podcast, and, you know, maybe people are choosing books from their own childhood. So those books were written between the 60s and the 70s. But when I was just doing a wee bit of research, I think as, as late as 2007, it was on the top 100 books that teachers chose in the States to teach the children. So that, those storylines obviously transcend different generations and 30 odd years after they're they're written teachers still see the value of impartment to the next generation of kids oh that's great to hear I, i i didn't know that and it's it's so important too you know you don't necessarily want to single out america but we maybe know more about that when you think about books being banned and i'm always you know it's it's horrifying anywhere but when children's books are banned i think there's something particularly horrifying about trying to control what young people read when surely the big challenge is to have young people reading and thinking and putting their minds making their own decisions about things and fantasy novels are often the novels with magic are often the ones that get um that get hit from that point of view thanks for listening to the read all about it podcast and i'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.